Okay, we're going to do the scripture reading now. I don't know. This is ridiculous. It's It's 1 Peter 1, uh, 1 through 12. First Peter 1, 1 through 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Please pray with me. Jesus, we love you this morning, and we thank you for these words. We thank you for the truth that's in them. Uh, Thank you that we get to look upon you today. We get to worship you today and learn more about you. Pray that in in this time, we would be close to you. We would draw near to you and um, we would just take take these scriptures and this truth to heart that we could know you better and serve you, love you better. Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Oh, sorry, Joel. <laughs> I have a, 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 it's a funny morning. Couple of a couple of announcements uh, on my part. Number one is I just wanted to give everyone an update on the December giving. So we, we announced in early December that, um, that there was an anonymous uh, $20,000 matching donation. Um, and so, um, the giving before that uh, matching donation was 55, I think it was $55,000 that you all gave during the month of December, plus the matching donation. So the, the total giving for the month of December was $75,000, which is a huge amount of money um, you know, for our church. And so um, 
we can say uh, thank you, and we can even just clap. And just, that's just that's that's a lot of money. And uh, it, the thing that I guess it makes me uh, feel the most good about that is that there were a, a large number of people that gave, and everyone can contribute in their own way. And it wasn't like um, somebody said, "Oh." $20,000 matching donation, I'm going to write a $20,000 check, and we're there. That, that, you know, that didn't happen. So there are lots of people that chipped in and, and made it all happen. So that's great. Um, we have a, a budget meeting on Monday at, um, at noon with Steve McKinsey and Laura and I and um, the church finance company called Finch. And so we will get, be giving you um, just the update of that. And the purpose of that is to finalize the 2017 budget. Um, so... Uh, again, I, I think I saw Steve here somewhere, but Steve McKenzie, just oh, there he is. Thank you again. Um, just significant help, and um, you know, part of my job is is the behind-the-scenes life of the church, and finances are a huge part of that. And I, I honestly would maybe um, have had a heart attack of stress and anxiety if it weren't for Steve stepping up and and helping and just giving clarity to that. So just a huge thank you to Steve for that. Um, next is uh, just a good reminder. I, I think it was before Christmas. I don't remember exactly. But in the last couple of weeks, I got together with Liz. And um, Liz was contemplating going back to Hawaii and, and going back to do ministry there that she had uh, been a part of. And I just encouraged her that if she decided to stay, that to apply things that she learned there to, to make them a part of her life here. And it's, it's significant to me that she just stepped up and is doing it. And so I just, I encourage you, um, you know, what happens in churches a lot of times, people are just have great ideas and do nothing. They have all these great, people have great ideas and, and they come to the pastor and say, you should do this. You, and and don't, don't do anything. Well, Liz just, just did it. And so I encourage you, and what a great thing. And I encourage you, if you have an, an idea or something you'd like to do, um, there, there isn't a six-month-long committee process uh, to go through this. I was like, Liz, just invite people to come and pray. That, that doesn't take a lot of thought and contemplation. That's, a, that's an excellent thing. So thank you, Liz, for doing that. And Colby also, I mean, being debt-free. 25, Colby? How old are you? 24. 24. That's Pretty amazing. That's awesome. All right, so we are starting a, um, a series on the book of 1 Peter, and I am excited about it. We're calling it uh, Safe in the Storm. Um, you know, I don't get to talk to all of you regularly, but I do get to talk to many of you regularly, and um, one of the things that continually comes up is just the, uh, the pattern of of struggles in life and how life seems to be challenging and and life brings storms and and how do we navigate life and how do we navigate life as a Christian and so I decided to um, uh, you know I was thinking about uh, Peter the Apostle Peter and and thinking about the letter that he wrote and um, the letter that he wrote has a lot to do with um, the grievous hardships that life brings. And, and that is the context of this, this letter that he writes. And, you know, Peter is especially interesting to me. I, I, I like him. In some ways I can relate to him. You know, in some ways I can't. You know, one thing about the Apostle Peter is he, he's just all out. He, he's, he's, 
he's fully there and his personality, you know, he's, what you see is what you get. And sometimes people like that get themselves in hot water and do dumb things. And, and he, um, that's something we can all relate to. We've all said things that were like, oh, why did I just say that? We've all done things that why did I just do that? Well, that's, that's Peter. And, um, you know, one of my favorite stories about Peter is, um, I think it's Matthew chapter 14, when Jesus and the disciples uh, just finished feeding the 5,000 and Jesus sends the disciples um, away on the boat. He says, I'm going to stay back and pray. And um, before too long, the waves begin battering the boat and pushes them out. And um, um, I think the Bible says somewhere between 3 and 6 in the morning in the midst of this storm, uh, Jesus appears to them. And, and we won't turn there this morning, but the language of that story is significant. And, and he, the language is something like this. It says that they were terrified. So they're out. You have to just use your imagination a little bit. All right? Um, it's dark. All right? They, the Bible says it's between 3 and 6 in the morning. They're on a boat. Um, right? Man, there's no electricity. There's none of the, you can't see lights off in, in the city. Um, and there's a storm. And the boat's just getting beat and uh, battered. And they see off in the distance what appears to be a ghost. And we have to think about this for a second. You have to put yourself back in the first century, okay? This is not Casper. It's not Ghostbusters. It's none of that. They think that this is the spirit of a dead person walking on the water. So pitch dark. This is kind of everyone's nightmare a little bit. Pitch dark out in a stormy lake, and you see what appears to be the spirit of a dead person coming at you. And they say things like, um, the Matthew says that they are crying out in fear, that they are terrified. And that's something that we can, as we think about life and, and, and the uncertainty of life and, and how life goes forward, that we can relate to. And um, Peter, it's about 30 years later or so that he writes this letter to this community of believers who are going through a hard time, that are struggling with life and trying to make sense of life. And, um, you know, I, I, I know that as a you know, community of people that live here in Malibu, we, we all either play in the ocean or we love the ocean or we're fascinated by the ocean. And, um, you know, that is me as well. In fact, over um, Christmas break when we were up in Washington, there's one thing that I really wanted to do that I haven't done in years, and that was to um, uh, grab a book and take a ferry ride from Port Townsend to Woodby Island, um, which isn't that far. And so it, it's, it's funny up there. You know, in the Northwest, this time of year, it gets dark super early. So it was, I think it was like 5 o'clock, and I was like, felt like I wanted to get ready for bed because it's totally dark. And I'm like, Karen, come on, let's, let's go. And she's like, of course, let's go. And so we get on the boat, and I have my little hot chocolate, and we're just sitting there. And as soon as we get out off the dock a little ways, it's super windy. And the, and the boat just start, starts do, doing this. And I'm like, I can't, I, I, I can't. I get seasick super easy, by the way. And so I, uh, that didn't happen. And then we had a little puzzle. They had little puzzles out that you can play. <laughs> Tried the puzzle. That didn't work either. Um, but my point is, is the storm, we're out in this. And it, storms, the, the picture, the idea of a storm a literal storm is fascinating. We love it. We're curious about it. Um, when the winds blow and the ocean's out of control, we love to look at it and see it. When storms happen in life, 
it presents dilemmas and it presents fear and, and hardship. And so First um, Peter has much to offer us as far as the idea of how do we navigate life when life is hard, when it brings storms. I came across this, and I, I found this to be insightful. This, was, um, this is from a, a podcast that I occasionally listen to, and it's a, a, a quote from a 1955 Armed Forces Officer Military Manual. All right, so these guys that wrote this, these are World War II officers. Um, World War II is over now, and after the war, they're going to contemplate and think about things, and, and what can they offer to future soldiers, future officers? And here's one thing they said. The question was this, what is the main test of human character? What is the main test of human character? And this was the, the answer. That a person will know how to be patient in the midst of hard circumstances and continue to be personally effective while living through whatever discouragements beset you or your companions. The main test of human character. And think about what a challenge that is and how contrary. Okay, this is 1955. Patience in the midst of hard circumstances. I mean, we fight like hell to end hard circumstances as fast as we can. And we want, we want them to be over. And this podcast said, this guy, and some of you have heard of him, I've talked to you, and I forget his last name, but it's called Jocko Podcast. And he says this, can you persevere through discouragement? And then he says this, it made me laugh. He said, are you in a job you don't like? And his response was, good. It's a little test for you. And we think about this for a second. Are you fighting with your spouse? Well, good. Maybe it's a little test for you. Think about this. Let me just speak to the men for a second. How are you speaking to your wife? Are you speaking to her in a way that demeans her or humiliates her? And now she's barking back a little bit, finally, because she's over it? Well, here's the little test. Do you have enough humility as a man to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong? Maybe that's your little test. Maybe the test for the wife is forgiveness. Maybe God has allowed this little circumstance, this little thing to fester as a test. Can you forgive? Are you going to use this thing to manipulate and control your husband? He's 100% wrong. And does he have enough humility to say, I'm sorry, forgive, I, I need your forgiveness? Do you have the ability to say, I forgive you and move on? Maybe your child's being a complete punk. Well, good. Maybe it's an opportunity for you to step up and learn what it means to be a father. Maybe it's an opportunity for you as a husband to get on the same page with your wife and deal with problems. We all have problems. And I, I kind of chuckle you know, the last few weeks and, and just meeting with different people. I've met with single people in their 20s. They have challenges. I've met with people who are married in their 20s without kids. They have challenges. I've met with young people, young married people who have kids. They have problems. I talk with people my age who have kids my age. They have, I talk with people who have raised their kids and they have challenges. It's like, you know what? Okay, it doesn't take a lot of contemplation to, to figure out that uh, life is challenging. It, it is hard. And our hearts get hurt. And um, we need a way to move forward. So I do want to, let me just say this one time though, something to think about. 
that the main test of your character is that you will be patient in the midst of hard circumstances. Why? So you can learn things. And I think that's part of what Peter is writing. As we go through this book, you'll learn this, that Peter is saying to people, these people, these believers, to not waste these opportunities. And I am... I'm right there with everyone else that I just want to solve the problem and move on. And, and maybe we're missing things. Maybe you're missing opportunities for growth. And so um, what we'll do this morning is we'll just, we're going to just, um, I'm going to identify from this passage three or four principles to help us um, understand how we navigate storms and help us understand how the gospel helps us, help us understand how Jesus helps us and um, understand how that we, we won't be thrown off guard when life happens. We're not going to be shocked or surprised that all your problems go away once you, know, once you get married. Like when you're single, you just want to get married and life will be great. And then you get married and you're like, oh, well, uh, you know, then, then, as soon as we have kids, life is going to be great. Then, that, and then you're like, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And, as soon as I retire, life is going to be great. And then you're just going to miss your kids and your grandkids. Like it, right? So we have to like learn to be patient and enjoy life and see how God wants to make our lives um, beautiful and joyful. So number one um, that we see here in Peter's introduction to this letter is this, is that the gospel creates a distinctive lifestyle. That the gospel creates a distinctive lifestyle. And part of the problem, or part of the challenge of um, the people that Peter was writing to is that they were experiencing hardships because of who they were in Christ. And it's really important to understand that in the beginning. I know that the storms of life are nuanced, and there's different reasons and different circumstances for storms of life. But in the context, the historical context of this letter, is that people were being ridiculed, people were being pushed to the sides of life because of their faith in Christ. And it, um, it made me think, so here, let me show you where this is found. Verse 1 says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And these cities, these areas, they're not cities, they're areas, this is modern-day Turkey. Uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. These are all areas within modern-day Turkey. We used to refer to this area as Asia Minor. And, but this takes place in a historical time, real-time, real life. And Peter describes them with two words. All right, number one, um, elect. Number two, exiles. Now, just I'm going to be kind of ridiculously brief on this, but... Let me just point this. The word elect. All right, so Peter refers to these believers as elect. Now, that, what does that mean? Well, if you were to pick you know, two or three things that in the history of the church was one of the more difficult things to wrestle with and understand is this. All right, so people write books and volumes on this idea of election and what does that mean? So the Bible clearly teaches two things that feel or appear to be create a tension. All right. So number one, maybe the most well-known verse in the Bible is this: that um, 
the, for, uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So the Bible clearly teaches that God loves the world. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, uh, the summary is that God desires that all people be saved. So there's, there's, and there's endless Bible verses over and over again that say things like that. That God loves the world, he died for the world, that he loves people. And then we come across verses like this that says, to the elect, that God chooses. Let me just give you an example. Matthew chapter 22 says, and these are the words of Christ, many are called, but few are chosen. So, that is a tough one to wrestle through. And I take what would be called a reformed view of theology, a position. And I'm, I'm going to stop there. There is an Arminian position. And those two different perspectives are what you would call an in-house or a, um, a, a, a disagreement within the church that is not worth fighting over. There are some things that you can just have different viewpoints on and still be friends. That's one of them. I hope. And here's the, here's the test. I mean, honestly, here's the reality. Some people, this is why people don't like the church. People dig in and fight over these things, and the internet just explodes with crazy people who just want to attack people who have a different view than another person. So we're not going to do that. We're just going to say this is a really tough, we're going to be honest, and if you want to talk to me and get coffee, I'm happy to, but we're going to say this is a tough one to wrestle through. All right, next though, the word exile. And that word means that, that the believers were pushed out to the edge of society. You have to think of it like this. Um, I'm going to have a really fun party, and I'm inviting everyone except for you. All right, and you're out. Right? Well, we know that hurts our feelings, and that hurts feelings of other people more than others. But it's that idea. All right, and I, I started thinking about it. Well, what was it? What, what was it about early Christianity that pushed people to the side? And um, I, I promise I'm just going to read a tiny, tiny amount, and I'll just summarize. But this is a brand new book called uh, Destroyer of the Gods, Early Christian Distinctiveness in the Roman World. And he's, he's some scholar guy that, you know, just spends his life studying these things. But there's some interesting things. And I don't, let me just give you a, a heads up that it's a little bit offensive, so I don't want to, if you want to get up and leave, you can. Or if you have young ones here, you can. But I just feel like, listen, I, I want to know. I, I want to know why were these people pushed? Why were they disliked? Why were Christians disliked in the Roman Empire? And it wasn't state-sponsored torture. It wasn't that rare. It did happen occasionally, but it was rare that the government would say, you're a Christian, off to jail. That was rare. It did happen, but it was rare. It was more a social context. All right, so here's, here's what this guy says. And I'll give you, the, I'll give you the, the context. I wrote down the, the page number. There are two, two areas that he identifies, and they are quite disturbing in how Christians were distinct from the culture around them. Okay, So number one, is what historians call <clears throat> infant exposure. Infant exposure. This was the practice, I'm, I'm going to read a short bit. This is the practice of discarding unwanted babies and the reasons why they were discarded. This practice often 
um, referred to in scholarly studies as infant exposure, typically involved the unwanted newborn baby on a trash heap site or some abandoned place, the infant left to die or to be collected by someone usually saved for slavery. Although it was difficult to consider the practice without revulsion, in the Roman time period, it was apparently not a source of moral outrage. So people would literally dispose of their children. And if you are a student of history, you know that the girls were the predominant ones. Let me give you an example. This is from a, a, a letter written by a, a man in the Roman army. His name was Hilarion, and he writes a letter to his wife, and the summary is this. After greeting his wife with, with pleasantries, sweet, saying sweet things to his wife and other relatives, he begs her to take care of the little one. That's their son. Their child, and he's promising to send money as soon as he is paid. Then, referring to his wife, who is expecting another child very soon, he writes, If it is a boy, let it be. If it is a girl, cast it out. But then, after this rather blunt order, he continues by expressing his unaltered, tender affection for his wife. And, and so we're like, what? You're like, we can't even wrap our brains around the idea of this kind of um, actions that people would do. So, guys like Justin Martyr and other Christians took a strong stance against this. Early, so here's a specific way I'm telling you that the early church, early followers of Christ took a bold stand against that, that that was morally outrageous. And so we, we, just, we need to think carefully that no matter the time period, that the gospel will always have parts of it that oppose the culture, that will not be popular in the culture today. All right, so that's one. Um, one other one, and I'll just be brief because it's, it's a little bit... Um, one page, one page is that? The other um, has to do with human sexuality. All right? According to historians, in the larger Roman era, in the larger Roman era, cultural settings of this, and he's referring to Paul's writings, um, he says it's the double standard in sexual practice was fully in force. Okay, double standard for men versus women. Wives were generally held to one standard of behavior, strict marital chastity. Husbands, quite another. Husbands, uh, men and husbands were allowed considerable more freedom to have sex with other women, particularly women deemed not to possess honor or status. And it goes on and said, it said and, I'll, and I'll, some of it was like just over the top, like offensive. So I'll spare you some of that. But the general idea is this, that it was culturally accepted to have a wife who was in a position of status, that would bear you children, it, and then you'd have a concubine, then you had a housemaid, and those were all people that, that, you could, that the man could indulge themselves. All right, here's the point, and, and this is something I've never heard of before, um, but, but this, was, this was not, um, it says not openly, it was, it was encouraged, it was encouraged. Um, and it goes on, it says, including sex with prostitutes, and I'm sorry, this is so offensive. Also, sex with boys, slave boys, children. 
And so the Christians, early Christians, stood up against that and said that human sexuality is designed by God within the boundaries of marriage. And is that controversial today? Well, of course it is. And I understand that I'm, I'm sure there are people here that would disagree with me on that. And I understand, I understand but here's what you have to understand as, as a follower of Christ, that the gospel that Jesus Christ will always create a distinct culture. And that, that attitudes towards human sexuality always change. They are evolving and changing. And things that we find offensive today, like what I just read you, were encouraged during the Roman Empire. They were not only accepted like, hey, I had a boy. No, it was like, go get him, boy. It was encouraged. Get after it. We find the sexual ethics of the Roman Empire offensive. I don't care <clears throat> what your views are today on human sexuality. I think it would be almost impossible to find someone today in our country that felt it was acceptable to be a pedophile, to have sex with a boy. Roman Empire times, that was part of it. So, to be a Christian creates a distinct lifestyle. And it is so, what, what happens, and what, ha what happens in Christianity that, that they can so easily miss the mark is distinctiveness, if you're not very careful, leads to pride. And you think you're better, and you think you've got all the answers, and you think you know it. And that's what happens, and it creates a dislike from people because you think you have all the answers and you think you know it all. And that's where I'm, the basic foundational aspect of being a Christian that we can turn to is the Sermon on the Mount. And let me just read one verse from the Sermon on the Mount. This is the words of Christ, his first sermon. He says this, <clears throat> Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So Christians as followers of Christ, creates a distinct lifestyle. But that distinct lifestyle is held with humility. That the words of Christ say that we are to be poor, and that he's talking about who you are. And, and the, the modern word today is humility. That we are to be marked by humility. That we follow Christ, and that might create a counterculture against the wide culture in our country, but we do it with humility, that we love people and we understand that we are, and we understand that we are all deeply flawed. To, to, to prove that humility, if we look at the words of Christ and we understand the words of Christ and, and applying this to human sexuality, that every person here, all, every, can't get any more clear than that, falls short and we've all made mistakes in the realm of human sexuality when you look at the, the words of Christ. And so that better create humility. That, that better erase any pride in any of our lives because we're all flawed people. So number one, and I'll, I'll be a little bit more brief. Number one, the gospel creates a distinctive lifestyle first and foremost because it creates a humility within us. But it does create a distinctiveness and you cannot be surprised or shocked when the words of Christ go against the popular culture of the day.
Number two, um, the gospel gives us hope in times when you are grieved by the fiery trials. Let me show you. This is, um, here's the context. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 says this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, for you have been grieved by various trials. And the word grieve is this intensity that there is, it's, it's, it's not that you're, your football team lost the game yesterday. It's something that you hold on deeply and you care so much about. Somebody that you love and you care about. And there's brokenness. And the gospel gives us hope in times of trial. I came across um, a, a short little excerpt from Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Searching for Meaning. And he talks about the significance of hope. So Viktor Frankl was a German psychiatrist who survived a concentration camp during World War II. And he talks about the significance of hope going, when you're going through trials of life, when you're going through storms of life. Here's what he said. The prisoner who lost faith in the future was doomed. When this happened, he also lost his spiritual health. He let himself decline with mental and physical decay. This would often happen quickly because of a crisis. The symptoms were common to the experienced inmate. A prisoner would refuse to wash, to get dressed, to go out to the parade grounds. Threats of the German officers would have no effect. Prisoners without hope would just lie there. They simply gave up. They would lay there in their own waste. Nothing bothered them anymore. The main push, the main thrust of, of Peter's um, first sentence, chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, is one long sentence in the original language. And his main point is this, is that while you're going through these fiery trials, why are you going through the storms of life? There is a living hope. And he says this, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Human beings need hope. In fact, most of us probably came to church this morning hoping for something, hoping for some encouragement, hoping to hear something from God's word, hoping to experience worship, hoping to see that handsome boy or that cute girl that I haven't seen for three weeks that I'm so excited to see again. And when that hope fades, a new hope comes. There's a new person, right? So we, we live on hope. As human beings, we, we require hope. And it's interesting to me that as a scientist, Viktor Frankl, he, he would observe prisoners. Now you can't, uh, we can't think of anything as hopeless as a German concentration camp for a Jewish person during World War II time period. The most hopeless and dire situation. And he said that the, the prisoners who made it through were the ones who held on to hope. And that's what Peter says. So his point, number one, is how do we navigate the storms of life is you have to hold on to hope. You have to, you have to understand that we have hope, and his name is Jesus Christ. And what is it based on? Here's some elaboration on this hope, this living hope. His name is Jesus Christ. And what makes 
this hope so significant is number one is that our hope is built on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That everything of who you are as a person looking forward to the future is built on the truth that Jesus Christ is alive today. That while He was crucified, He is alive today. And because He is alive, we can all have life. Next, the hope is described in this way. That it's imperishable. Verse 4, we have this this future hope and inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The word hope in the Bible is, is significantly different than how we use it today. We use the word hope uh, in a future, uncertain situation. I hope it's going to rain again this week, and it might, but we don't know for sure. The Bible refers to hope uh, with an idea of certainty. And so the point is this, is that you can build your life on this, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is undefiled, unfading, and imperishable, that you can build your life on that. Next, the hope is guarded by God's power, Peter says, who by, the, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We navigate life through the fiery ordeals because we have hope, because Jesus Christ is alive. I'll finish up with this. In this really long sentence that is broken up into multiple sentences in the English, um, when you study the Bible, you, you try to identify the main clause. What is the main clause in this really long sentence? And... Um, there is a, an excellent commentary by a woman named Karen Jobes on 1 Peter, and she identifies the main clause as the beginning part of verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a statement of praise. And, and I'm going to finish with this, but here's, think about this for a second. We all have habits that we wish we didn't have. And whatever that is for you, I wish I was more patient. I wish I had to be more controlled with my words. I wish I didn't have the habit of just responding quickly with my mouth. Or I wish I didn't have the habit of being judgmental. I wish I didn't have the habit of being a gossip. Whatever it is. We all have habits that we wish we didn't have. And I came across this uh, sermon by a Scottish pastor from the 1800s. And I'm going to finish with this. And I'm, I'm, going, to show it, I'm going to show it to you because it's written um, in 1800 language. But the, I'll give you the point of it. It's this. The only way you can replace a habit in your life that you don't like is to replace it with something better. And what it, here's what Peter is saying. The only way we're going to grow, the only way you're going to replace things in your life is through worship. And Karen Jobes, uh, the, the, this woman scholar on 1 Peter, says that doxology, doxa is the uh, Greek word for glory, doxology, glorifying Christ in your life, is the only thing that will displace the bad habit. I can say things like, um, gossip is bad, stop it. 
Well, that, that, that's going to work for about 13 minutes, maybe. You might leave the church property, but I don't know. Maybe you're better than I am at it. All right, but what will displace that is the beauty of Christ, is worshiping Christ, is seeing the beauty of who Jesus Christ is. So I'm gonna sh- I think we've got it, and it's, it's interesting. So we'll finish up with this. I think we have, okay. It is thus, and he's talking about replacing one desire for another. It is thus that the boy ceases at length to be a slave of his appetite. But it is because a man, manlier taste has now brought it into subordination and that the youth ceases to idolize pleasure. But it is because the idol of wealth has become stronger and gotten the ascendancy and that even the love of money ceases to be the master over the heart of many thriving citizens. It is because he's drawn into a world of city uh, politics, plights, another affection that has been wrought into his moral system. And, and he is now lorded over uh, by the love of power. And so his point is, there's always something taking the place. And he's saying that the only way to actually grow and change and replace bad habits, and, and oh, I think we're gonna, um, we'll, we'll stop there, is by having the affections of your heart be captured by Christ. And so, when life is challenging, when life is hard, you are more susceptible to bad habits, to those things growing in your life. And so I just want to encourage us, as we're, if, if we're navigating storms, you build your life on the hope of Jesus Christ. You, you stoke the affections of your heart to see the beauty of Jesus Christ so that things that are creeping into our lives can fade away so that Christ takes preeminence in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that as we study this book, um, that we would be captured by the resurrection power of your Son, Jesus Christ, that the affections of our heart would be captured by a life that has purpose and meaning that's more significant than our own selfish desires. Father, we are, uh, we're reminded that we are all susceptible to being thrown off course when storms hit, to, to being mastered by discouragement, being controlled by depression or anger or fear. Father, I pray that through the power of your Spirit that there would be freedom, that we would see the beauty of Christ, that we would renew the affections of our heart to be more in love with your Son. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.